You're listening to the Boss Business of Surgery series, episode 84. Today, I talk with Dr. Dawn Baker. She is the author of Lean Out, a professional woman's guide to finding authentic work-life balance. Isn't that what we're all looking for? And it's almost here. Become the Boss MD book is coming out 20 June, but you don't have to wait. You can get your sneak peek at bosssurgery.com. Welcome, surgeons. Residency didn't teach us everything we need to learn from a successful surgeon. While we spent our time caring for patients and learning how to operate, we didn't learn how to advocate for ourselves or navigate our career. I'm your host, Dr. Amy Virtrans. I'm a general surgeon, certified coach, and founder of the Boss Business of Surgery series. This is where you learn those lessons. Welcome back. I have a great guest today. I have, you know, someone from the other side of the blood brain barrier, <laughs> Dr. Dawn Baker. She's an anesthesiologist and she is here to talk to us about her book and work-life balance and burnout and all the things, doing things differently. So I'm really excited that she is here to help us with a framework of how to figure some of these things out. So Dr. Baker, tell us a little bit more about yourself. Sure. First of all, thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. And I am an anesthesiologist. I have been in practice after residency for a little more than 10 years. And I am actually a second career MD. I used to be an engineer. And my early adult life involved playing around with careers in engineering. I had a couple of different jobs. And then at the same time, meeting my husband and starting to do what I would call a lifestyle sport. And if anybody knows what that means, it's like there's a whole community around certain sports or activities that you do. And it becomes, it informs everything about your life. Like all of your time off, all of your time that you're not at work, um, your vacations. And that sport was rock climbing for me. And so I started traveling a ton. I traveled the world. We went all over the country whenever we had breaks, whenever we could fashion some sort of break in between a job, in between school. And it changed the way that I wanted to live my life. I decided that I didn't want to be in a cubicle I wasn't really psyched about the people that were ahead of me in my engineering career and what they were doing. I looked at what they were doing and I was like, eh. And it uh, was something where you get pegged into a geographical niche. When you practice engineering, you have to live in a certain place to do that certain industry. And so I decided I was going to go into medicine because people were sick all over the world. And I knew that if I picked the right specialty, I could have the kind of time off to do the type of rock climbing trips that I really wanted to do, which sometimes you want to take a little longer than your typical trip. So I was already kind of had this vision in mind of doing something that was out of the ordinary, but I saw medicine as a way to be free, as a, a way to have a little more freedom in my schedule and in where I lived. So I went into medicine and I chose anesthesiology, which I knew that if I didn't do certain types of anesthesiology, I wouldn't have a clinic. So I wouldn't have longitudinal care needs with patients and I could take those trips. So I got into residency and I kind of fell back on uh, the geographic confining things when I got interested in a specific niche area of anesthesiology. And it had to do with the fact that I was very adept at physics and ultrasound and some things that 
lended themselves to me being good at this perioperative echocardiography subspecialty of anesthesiology. And I got on what I call the treadmill of achievement. And I took on research projects. I got really excited about um, teaching echocardiography um, to other residents and doing a research project in that. I was presenting. And all this whole time, I was also experiencing what I thought was burnout. And so I had some weird nonspecific symptoms complicated by the fact that I was trying to start a family because I was a little older and I was realizing that I needed to get going if I was going to have a family. It was like kind of in my um, early to mid thirties and long story short, a reproductive endocrinology appointment regarding infertility led me to get a diagnosis of a brain tumor And it was thought that it was probably a pituitary tumor, which was related to the fact that I had infertility, though they didn't really know what I had. Um, It turns out that I was going blind and I didn't even know. And I had delayed my own diagnosis by several months because I was so busy and I was too busy to get my head scanned. (laughs) And so when I got it done, it was an Easter Sunday in between calls. I begrudgingly went in and had a life-changing diagnosis, basically. And when I had that and I had surgery, it had to be surgically removed. I was on the operating table with my anesthesiologist supervisors taking care of me with all of the people around me that I worked with. I ended up in the neuro ICU with patients I had recently taken care of. It was a real kind of surreal experience. And it was a wake-up call for me to realize that I was not taking care of myself properly. I wasn't self-aware enough to know that I was really very gravely ill. And uh, it changed the direction that I wanted to go, to go back toward the freedom that I had gone into medicine for. And so I stopped going down the path of going into a specialty that would have pegged me into a very specific academic city center type of a lifestyle. And I went into bread and butter anesthesiology. And that's probably enough story now. We can we can talk more about what happened yes. after that. So many interesting aspects of that too. I mean, so many enormous lessons that you have just shared with us too. You know, one was just the the audacity to think that I can decide what my life looks like. And that came through this idea of the lifestyle sport, which is really cool concept to see that, you know, this means so much to me is that I'm going to work my life around that. And, you know, that knowledge that you wanted to do that and looking at the future of the people, the models that you had in engineering and saying, no, I don't want to be like those people. I think a lot of that, we see that in medicine too. You know, we're on this linear path. We've been given the academic, you know, um, whatever, hopping on the academic train. And we see that's all that's offered. And, you know, we were talking before we recorded of people that have this path. And then, you know, you have a path that turns sideways. Goodness knows I've turned sideways a few times. Um, And when you do that based on what you really want to do, and you know you find these things in life, then that's how we're getting our decisions is based on who we are as people and we want out of our life rather than what's being told for us. And I think it's truly remarkable that you recognize that not once, but twice, you know, this job is going to trap me. And so I'm going to choose this other career path that won't trap me. And then lo and behold, any career will trap you if you're not careful. <laughs> yeah, it's true. And I think a lot of people go into medicine, um, for for various reasons, but they think that 
it's going to have this very financially secure path or, you know, it's going to set me up in this way that I am going to have all this autonomy and, you know, you just have this vision of what it's going to be like. And maybe it's based on a mentor. It's based on a parent or somebody that went into medicine. Now, I didn't have role models like that in my life. I didn't have any family members or anything, but it's just interesting how we all have this vision of what it's going to be like. And then a lot of times it doesn't end up, the reality doesn't end up being the way that, that, that we envisioned. And so you have to be able to pivot from that and be flexible and be like, Hmm, okay, now what I'm going to do. Yes. And you also had this trap of the treadmill or the, yeah, the treadmill of achievement, which we all have. And we've talked about this before of this idea of you know, the natural tendency for satisfaction is to you know, try to get what you want, but it, that sensation doesn't last. So you have to continually get what you want. And it's that continual aspect of not appreciating what you have and always seeking something more. It's a natural biologic tendency. So we have to realize that we have to be present and us doing that so we can keep ourselves from not doing that. And your awareness of that's helpful. The other aspect, which is so enormously important is how much we ignore our physical symptoms and signs. And we do not allow time to take care of ourselves with preventable things. All the things we tell our patients to do that we do not do under this guise of too busy because we are on this treadmill of achievement and the treadmill stops for no one, including illness, including potentially going blind. Yes. I mean, I was a horrible example of for patients and then also just, just for people because I lost my period during my early, maybe like internship year. And that was one symptom that I was ignoring for over a year, the fact that I didn't have a period. And sometimes people think, you know, a lot of women think like, oh, this is so convenient. It's great. Well, why is that happening? That is not normal. You should not lose your period when you're 32 years old. And I didn't say anything about it for a long time until we were deciding that we wanted to probably build a family or start a family, um, you know, pretty soon. And then I also was having sleep disturbance. I was having um, a lot of depression symptoms, but they were like a kind of depression where you weren't sad. It was like you weren't motivated. And so I talked a lot about how I had this passion for rock climbing. But during that period of time, while I thought I was having this burnout and I was having these, these strange symptoms, part of it was like, I didn't even want to get out of bed. I didn't want to rock climb. I didn't want to go on the travel or the trips that I had done before. And so that was all related to the fact that I had this pituitary tumor that was um, blocking my hormones and causing me to, to have absolutely zero estrogen going through my body. Um, and that can make you feel just not like a person. It was really interesting. And then I had trouble with my procedures and that was probably related to the, the going blind because the ultrasound images weren't processing in my head correctly. When I had my surgery, and I was finished with all of my treatment and convalescence, and I went back to residency to finish, then I could do things like have a central line or a nerve block using ultrasound guidance, and I didn't seem to have any problems. So I think that that, that was related to my struggles on my rotations and residency too. Wow. Yes. And so what was the the final straw for you? Like, What was it that finally said, okay, I should probably pay attention to all of this? 
I remember that I took some time off in the midst of not knowing what was wrong because when they checked my, my physicians checked my hormones and they found that I had zero estrogen, progesterone, FSH, and LH in my blood, they said, this looks like hypothalamic stress-induced amenorrhea. And when they said stress-induced, I said to my program directors, I need to take some time off because I actually care about my fertility and I care about this side of my life. And I, I really need to just take a little break. And when I did that, I went down the road of learning all sorts of mindfulness techniques. I actually um, had a coach, which was a mentor's husband. Um, so I got some coaching. I had a therapist. I did a bunch of mental health work. But once I was done with that, I did feel better mentally. However, my period hadn't come back. I still had some of the same physical symptoms that really were, like I said, nonspecific and just kind of confusing. And one day I was at work and I saw my reproductive endocrinologist in passing in the hospital. And he said to me, you really need to get that MRI. He's like, I really think you should get that MRI. And I was like, all right, fine. And so that was what did it. <laughs> yeah, crazy. I mean, it's so easy, especially these nonspecific things too. You know, we're all sort of suppressing what were our physical symptoms and, you know, just drive on and we've got, you know, we have to go on. We, we are the least important person in all of this is, is, you know, usually typically what that message is, you know, we're telling ourselves unconsciously, you are the least important person of the people you encountered today. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. And if we take care of ourselves, then we're going to be more effective physicians and more effective spouses and more effective friends and, and parents. And it's like any relationship that we have, you know, the ones that are closest to us are the ones that tolerate neglect the most. But at some point, you know, that that period of neglect ends. It's like, that's it. I really actually do need you to pay attention to me. And that's true for our, our close relationships, but it's also true for ourselves too. You know, it tolerates neglect for a while, but not forever. Yeah. So take us through. So I know that you end up writing this book um, and starting this podcast, both called um, Lean Out. Take us through a little bit um, and the byline of Professional Women's Guide to Finding Authentic Work-Life Balance. So what led you to write this book? What was the driving force behind that? When I experienced my health challenge that I just described, I had this moment during my the time that I was really focusing on my mental health, that break that I had during residency. And I have always loved writing. And I decided that I really wanted to start writing a blog. So this was kind of uh, mid-2000s. Um, well, actually, late 2000s up to about 2010. So blogs were new and were really exciting. And podcasts were kind of starting then. I hadn't really thought of doing a podcast yet, but I love writing. So I started writing a blog and I thought I am going to write and help other physicians, other professionals learn about some of these stress management techniques that I've paid attention to. And burnout was becoming a thing that was talked about in the literature and in blogs and, and in the social media sphere as well during that time. So I started writing and I started my website, which is called practicebalance.com. And I continued doing that and mixed in 
information about stress management with my personal struggles. And after I had graduated from residency, had all of this whole brain tumor thing um, sorted out and, and dealt with, I then had permanent infertility from, from that problem. And so I still wanted to start my family. I documented on my website, my infertility journey. And I thought at that time that maybe I would write a book about infertility. And I bandied about and thought about it and then ended up doing a chapter in another book, in a group book that is called Mothers in Medicine about the topic. Kind of shelved the idea for a book for a while. And meanwhile, I now have a seven-year-old daughter. And I finally decided it was time to write the book. It was something where I needed to figure out I didn't want to just write a memoir. It didn't want it. I didn't want it to just be about me personally, but I didn't know exactly what lesson I wanted to teach. And so I ended up combining the infertility story and the kind of health challenges that women are facing today with the work hustle culture that is so ingrained in medicine and in other professions as well. I wanted to combine that with the idea of fashioning your own work-life balance and just stepping away from the fray and being courageous enough to do something unique. Because at this point now, more than 10 plus years out from what happened to me and from graduation from residency, I am doing something kind of unique with my career. I started out doing a an anesthesiology job that was in an academic hospital but didn't have any of the traditional academic responsibilities and that was unique so I was one of the first people at the institution I was at to do something like that and it kind of married um, the best of both worlds in my opinion I got a rich clinical experience because I saw unique patients that were maybe sicker than your typical surgery center patients or outpatient type of a situation or a community surgery center uh, because I was at an academic center, but I still was focusing on clinical, clinical medicine only, which is what I decided I wanted to focus on. So I had that career and then I or that job and then I... Uh, had my daughter, which I wanted so badly, and I went down to a part-time position. And then I realized my original value and original goal from way back when I was an engineer, which was to have this kind of location freedom and schedule freedom. When my academic position got a little bit too restrictive on the, the vacation time that I could take, I stepped away from it. And I started doing per diem locum tenens only anesthesiology. And now I travel part of the year. And I also live in a rural off-grid mountain property. And so I'm doing something just totally out of the box, but I'm still a physician. And I really wanted to give a lesson to other people that you can do something that is unique, that isn't like everybody else and still be a professional and still take good care of patients. And so that was how the book came about. Yes. And what I know that it's it's difficult to kind of summarize, obviously, a book, but you know, what was the main takeaway of someone who's like, I wonder if this is is for me? You know, what was the key to you deciding that this was okay? You know, basically like all these these things that I've been offered, that this is the career, how it is, 
you know, what was it that changed for you that allowed you to break free from that? Hmm. Well, I think a lot of it is, and you know, from, from coaching physicians, this too, that we don't give ourselves permission to be different or to just want something that is unusual. There, the culture is so ingrained that we have to be perfect. We have to be invulnerable. We can't be sick. We can't definitely show sickness in front of other colleagues. Now, I think that I automatically getting sick in front of the people that I was working with and that were that were part of my graduation from residency even, it kind of freed me from caring a little bit because I had to. I was forced to not care. I was forced to be vulnerable in front of my colleagues. And... I really wanted the book to be a thing that said, hey, you don't have to go as far down the path of getting to this crisis as I did to recognize this, to realize this. You can do some mental exercises, do some self-coaching and some self-work and figure out what you want and then get it now without getting sick without going down this path of like having a crisis, mental or physical. That is the the best lesson that I have learned is you actually don't have to wait till things are awful before you can start making changes. You know, I think the hardest decision we make hands down is when you're in a good job and you want something better. You know, the there is nothing more restricting and more trapping than the thought, this is good. <laughs> Yeah. Or like, I should be grateful Yeah, or I'm so lucky. It's like, well, if you want something different, that's okay. Yeah. And you need to just pay attention to yourself. No one else is looking out for you in the same way as yeah. you are. And you don't owe anybody anything. Yes. And they wouldn't want you to, you know, I, I deal with this, um, you know, having people who work for me and, you know, my thought as someone who you know, essentially employs people is I do not want them to stay because they feel like they should. You know, I don't want them to stay because I'm a nice person and I treat them well. You know, I don't want them to stay beyond their interest and capacity if this is not something that is the right job for them. You know, it's like I want them to have the, you know, to tune into their own interest and knowledge and you know, live the life that they want to live and not live their life for me. Because for me, that actually doesn't serve, it doesn't serve me and it doesn't serve them. Um, and so recognizing that gratitude can actually trap us too, just like you said, you know, you could be grateful for a job and leave it. You know, you could be happy that you had the time that you had in the job and appreciate all that they gave you and still leave. And it's actually okay. Um, I had this thought, early on that everyone is going to leave. And rather than that being like a pressure or a fear-based thought, it actually was very freeing. When I had the assumption that everyone is going to leave the job, including me, then you all of a sudden start realizing that that people are there for a, a time and a period and a season, and you don't they don't have to stay and I don't have to stay. That thought is very freeing. Yeah, that is a really interesting way of putting that. I I totally love that. I think um, thinking about it in that way is great. And 
I kind of run through some of the things that you were just saying in chapter five of my book, where it's like, these might be the thought traps that are keeping you from what I call leaning out, which is like guilt, fear, confusion, um, the kind of thought traps that we see, like all or nothing thinking um, or the arrival fallacy, those kind of things where it's like, well, I should just be here because this is what everyone is supposed to do. And if I'm not doing this, I need to go and I need to do real estate or I need to do non-clinical or, you know, something like that. Um, that what you want could be slightly, just, just a slight difference in what everybody else is doing in your specialty or in your career. And that is all right. So, um, yeah, those can be freeing, freeing feelings. And, and a lot of times I get people too, that come to me for coaching and they are like, I don't even know what I want. I, I know I want something different, but I don't know. And I don't know how to know. <laughs> and so that's where they need to really spend some time with their, with themselves too. Mm -hmm. And take time alone, even though it's difficult to find the time, you can find a little bit of time, even like on your commute to work, you can find some time where you can just sit in silence. And what are the ways you take someone through that? So they come to you and they say, I know I need to change. I don't know what it is, you know? Um, and so you tell them to spend some time alone, but what do you tell them to do? Like, is there a strategy or a framework that you offer? Or is it mostly a, you know, this expectation that it will come up? Cause I, I believe that it does come up, but do you offer anything specific that helps? Yeah, I definitely don't have a rigid framework because everyone is a little different. And sometimes when I have clients, they do have an opportunity in front of them, but they're scared to take it. And sometimes they really don't have an opportunity at all. And they just like, are like, I know it needs to be different than what it is. And so depending on where people are starting from and how much they know about themselves is kind of like the starting point for me to figure out what to recommend. But one thing that I have everybody do is to do an exercise of going through and figuring out your core values. And I do think going back to what we talked about earlier, that having rock climbing in my life as an, as a young adult really helped me to instill my values early on, because I knew that I had a value of like having freedom in my life. I knew that I cared a tremendous amount about health and about being able to be active. And I wanted adventure. Um, I wanted autonomy. So those kind of words are core values. And some people have not thought about those words at all. And I have a very simple values exercise. It's in my book, but it's also on my website. And when people go there, they can see that there is a, a place to subscribe to my newsletter and they get this free values micro exercise. And it seems very simple. People are like, this isn't a real exercise. It's just like looking at words, but people don't do it and they don't think about it. And so it's a simple but iterative exercise where you go through, you look at a list of values and you say, what, what words of these are speaking to me? So first of all, you kind of like whittle it down to that, uh, maybe 10 words off this list of like 50 words that really are something that resonate with me. And then you think a little bit more deeply of like, what kind of things do I want um, in my life? What, uh, what do I care about? What if I see somebody doing the opposite 
like, for instance, maybe the value is honesty. If I see someone being dishonest, it really irks me. You know, that's a kind of a clue that 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 is one of your core values, for example. Or what when I see a commercial or a movie and they're exhibiting this certain value, it pulls at my heartstrings and it makes me want to cry, you know, that kind of thing. And so that's the first exercise I do with so many people is doing values. And then after that, we also talk about what things, identifying what things you do that give you flow, that induce that kind of feeling of flow, which is like time is both feels fast and slow. Um, It's a period of focus, a period where you lose a little bit of those, um, those thoughts of going into the future or going into the past or worrying about how you, how you look, those kind of things. And so um, that's how I help people to, those are kind of the first two steps of helping people to figure out what they want to do. And then from there, we go through like what things are draining energy from you that we could maybe peel away. If you really love clinical medicine, like you're, you know, you work in this certain environment in clinical medicine, but you're doing certain things or you have these certain roles that really are just taking all of your energy away. Then we identify those and figure out a way that maybe you could get rid of those. (laughs) Yeah, I completely agree too. You know, I find um, there's so much easy information out there to get ideas of who you are, basically providing clarity for the things that are currently driving you that help give you some idea of the direction to go to in the future. Now, in in a growth mindset kind of way, not a fixed mindset. And that's my biggest beef with some of these things like, um, you know, the Enneagram and, you know, even Sparkotypes and these other things is that um, the if you use those and limit yourself, then it's actually not helpful. But if you use those and say, you know, I see that with rock climbing, I like adventure and I don't like being boxed in. So it makes perfect sense when I look at my next decision-making that I'm going to consider that because that's who I am. And the clarity on who you are um, is why I think always try all these things, especially the free ones, you know, like the values-based things and the personality test. And because those are based on our thoughts about ourselves. it's, you know, we, we are giving the authority to them to tell us what's happening, but really what's happening, we are putting our own personal input in, they are processing it and giving our input back. So this is really what we think about ourselves. Um, and we can use that as tools to help better clarify what we're going to do in the future. So a lot, a lot of those exercises are so helpful. Yes, I have a chapter in the book also where I have the certain ones that I recommend that are assessments like what you're talking about. I have my own values-based exercise, but then there are these assessments that have different levels of validation, like you mentioned, um, that are free and easy to do. They're quick. They're not necessarily something that takes a huge time commitment. And so I have the certain ones that I recommend based on those criteria, and um, they are discussed in the book uh, and also highlighted. And then I give links to, you know, where to find them. And they are the same exercises that I have my coaching clients go through. Mm -hmm. And then I also talk a lot about experiments, like you said, doing things that are challenging, new, novel, different for you 
and give examples of those as ways to gain confidence. Because if you have a low stakes way of gaining self-knowledge and confidence, it will help you to have the confidence to then go and ask your supervisor to remove a certain role from your from your job, for example, or to go down an FTE or to just transition to an entrepreneurial situation or whatever it is that you decide that you want to do. Perfect. Oh, I completely agree. You know, experimenting is is the best way for us to see, like, I mean, do I, am I not good at this or am I just not good at this because I haven't tried it? You know, there's all kinds of things that go into um, what makes us better. Now, talk about a simple exercise. And this is a simple exercise and one that we are highly resistant to, myself included. <laughs> Getting feedback from other people. <laughs> mm. the, the most transformative exercise that I did was about a year ago um, through a a course that I took that um, we were given the direction to ask someone what they thought about us. You know, what was their description of us? You know, what were the things that, you know, like if they summed us up in one sentence, what would it be like? And, you know, what were our strengths and what were things that we can improve on? And that was really fascinating for me to look at because, you know, how I thought I was based on these personality things, which are based on my thoughts, was not exactly what other people were seeing. They identified some strengths in me that I was using all the time that I did not even notice that I was doing. And, you know, that degree, and and they suggested giving back to, I think, um, three people that know you the most, um, you know, or up, up to six. And I think I've asked, you know, somewhere between three and six people. And some things were remarkably consistent, but other people had little things as well. So, you know, that is an easy exercise that any of us could do is just to ask those, you know, simple questions of someone that we know and see how that changes our perception of ourselves. Yeah, I have seen that exercise. And I have to say that I have not done that in a professional setting. That is great that um, would be very helpful because you can see the way that other people see you and you do have self-perceived strengths. And I coach clients on that a lot. And I also um, have it in the book too, of making like a list of what you think are your strengths, but it's really interesting to see what other people think of you. And something I thought about when you were talking about going through that was one time I heard someone say that the definition of confidence is being willing to feel any feeling. And so going into that with like a curious curiosity where it's like not a fear of what are people going to say about me? Oh my gosh, it's going to be so painful to hear what someone says about me. It's more like I can handle this. I can handle anything that anybody is going to toss at me, any comment that they're going to make, it's all right, I will be fine. And that's something that I do often, which is, okay, well, clearly, we're worried about worst case scenario. So why don't we spend some time in the worst case scenario? And you start to realize, like, if the worst thing that could happen is that I feel a feeling, and I feel shame, like, why don't I sit for a minute in this feeling of shame and ask myself what happens and you realize that's it? That's all that's going to happen is I'm just going to feel some shame, you know, and then you start realizing that you have the ability to protect yourself in any of these worst case scenarios, because you've allowed yourself to look at them and spend a little time in that worst case scenario from a safe distance and start to realize I could actually do anything. Like there's nothing that I can't handle. 
And confidence is, you know, and that's the self-confidence. I have confidence in myself to do things I don't know how to do um, because I could do anything and be fine because I believe in myself. And, you know, confidence is like, well, I can do that because I've done it before. But even then, like with cases, we lose our confidence because we don't have belief that we will be able to manage our feelings if something happens. And that's, you know, once you start realizing that you can, then you start doing more things, which then, of course, give you evidence, the fact that you can do things, which is where confidence comes from. Yeah, <laughs> it's a circular. First. <laughs> yeah. It, it feeds itself by overcoming that fear. Yeah, it's so interesting how that works. Yes. And well, there's a, another concept that I heard as Brooke Castillo um, a long time ago, she said, you know, have you noticed that hiding under the bed doesn't actually make you feel more safe? <laughs> <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. Because you know, hiding from these things doesn't make us feel safe, but that's the reason we're hiding. We think we're going to be safe. But anyway, it's, you know, when people offer us thoughts that challenge our self-concept of the world, you know, that's when we start learning and growing. And, you know, when we start listening to what we really need to do, then we find the people and we find the jobs, we find the experiences that we need to feel, but it's shaking off the limiting things that is most helpful. As you've already you know, demonstrated, the more you know yourself, the more you find yourself in the right position, but you have to shed all these things, these limiting things that we've been telling ourselves all along. Yeah. And so it's interesting because what you're getting at is kind of the next level of of, of self-coaching, which is having somebody coach you. I mean, I, I wanted to give this book to people so that they can start that process of working on themselves and of doing some of these self-coaching type exercises. But then I still qualify it with, well, one of the hard things that you can do is get help. And so when you have somebody that's an objective third party giving you, there's the feedback and then there's also doing coaching with a coach um, that can challenge the beliefs that you have and the thoughts and help you to see that some of the thoughts that you're having are limiting or that, that they're not really serving you and that you need to change those around. Um, that's the next level, basically. I completely agree. And I'm laughing because, you know, like we tell ourselves, I can't do this because of this thought. That's the truth. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then we're like, is it though? And you start to realize that things that we're telling ourselves are truths are actually not truths. They're thoughts that we tell ourselves based on a lot of background. And I'm 100% in agreement with you is that that's where coaches really help is that, you know, we don't see it. We don't see what limiting thoughts are until you have a coach that's able to bring out the limiting thoughts that you have. And, you know, I also follow the same path of you can't coach everybody. Like we individually cannot coach everyone. And that's where we come up with the books and the podcasts, which allow us to exponentially reach people so we can continue to challenge everyone's limiting thoughts um, on a bigger scale. Because once you start seeing that it works, I mean, the physicians in us want to give the cure to the problems that we have. And, you know, that's where when you realize, well, this works, I cannot keep this a secret. So then you help people and then you realize you can only help this many people. So then you do the books and you do the podcast and you you write the articles that let more people have access to this information. Because once you see that it works, it feels wrong to keep it to yourself. 
Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I, being a frugal person too, I know that coaching is an investment. It's a significant investment when you do one-on-one coaching. And so I wanted to be able to have lower cost options for people, especially if you're kind of skeptical where you can get into doing some of the self-coaching first. And the reason I started the podcast too was I knew in my book, I wanted to profile some women that were doing things that were unusual and why they decided to do them. And I have not just physicians, but some people in some other fields, um, marketing tech. Um, I have a, a CPA and a lawyer as well that are profiled in there. Um, I wanted to give examples of like, these people are doing something. So you can do it too as inspiration. And I've continued with the podcast because number one, some people like to listen to things. So it's another way of another medium of, of reaching people and then giving that sense of community of listening to another person tell their story of how they broke free from, from the treadmill, from uh you know, being in a, a position that that wasn't helpful or maybe that was toxic or whatever it was. And then they got to a situation where they feel like their work-life balance is so much more, you know, sustainable, much better. And they're still doing their particular profession in some way. It's not like they completely left. And so that, those are the kind of people that I interview and that I profile and have published on the podcast. I agree. Well, along those lines, now we've already mentioned the book, um, Dr. Don Baker, Lean Out, Professional Women's Guide to Finding Authentic Work-Life Balance. And I know that your podcast is also called Lean Out, and your website is thepracticebalance.com, where they can find the values exercise and get on your newsletter. Um, so how? what are other ways that you work with people? What is What is the offering that you have? Yeah. So I have um, all of those things you mentioned. And then I do do at this point, one-on-one -on -one coaching. Um, I have done group coaching in the past specifically for women physicians with infertility, but I have been putting that on the wayside for now. I really prefer one-on-one -on -one coaching. I really like to just look at the individual and meet them where they are, work through work-life balance transitions that's what most of my clients are right, right now. It's um, someone who wants to make a change, doesn't really know where to start, or wants to um, make a change to a job that is presented to them, but they, they, they don't know how to take the steps. They don't know how to feel good with the steps. Something is holding them back. Those kind of things. I love those clients so much. So I have that that coaching arm. Um, and people can follow me on social media. I really am active on Instagram because something that I love is photography and images. So that's why I gravitate toward Instagram. Um, you can find me uh, practice balance is my handle. And then I'm on Facebook as well. People can contact me that way, but you can contact me and send me any message or schedule a free call through my website, practicebalance.com. That's perfect. Well, great. Well, um, any last thoughts? I know we've covered a lot and we can't possibly cover all the things, but any last thoughts you want to share with people? Mm. I think one of the, the hardest things, and I probably mentioned this, but I'm just going to say it again at the last, in closing, at the last minute here, which is to 
give yourself permission to be yourself. And you, are you not based on your accomplishments, not based on your achievements, not based on your your accolades, your awards, your degrees, you are inherently a person that is worthy of having the kind of work-life balance that you want. And your work-life balance is going to look different than everyone else's work-life balance. And I know people hate that word balance. Mm -hmm. I think it's wonderful. I still love it. It's a continuous practice. It's going to look different for everyone. And it's something that you're always practicing, just like the practice of medicine. We're never perfect at it. And so it's something that's going to change all the time. Give yourself permission to to have the kind of balance that you want. I think I'm laughing because I'm pretty sure the reason why people don't like balance is they have no idea what it is because we <laughs> tried it. <laughs> yeah, true. Perfect. Well, good. I, such valuable advice. And so thank you so much, Dr. Baker, for coming on. And I will make sure that these links are on there so they can find you. But I really appreciate you coming on today. Thank you so much. For more information on the Boss Business of Surgery series, go to bosssurgery.com.